Well, thank you all for coming. Welcome to Cato. Uh, my name is Jonathan Blanks. I'm a research associate here at the Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Um, just a quick reminder, uh, make sure your cell phones are off. We don't like uh, the interruptions and such. Um, we're going to do about 75 minutes, uh, and then we'll have open it up for Q&A. Uh, but today we wanted to talk about uh, so much in, like our, in criminal justice circles, we always talk about mass incarceration. And here, particularly on the federal level, what we tend to think about are felony convictions and people who are doing many, many years for, you know, drug possession or some other thing where you're doing decades of work, I mean, excuse me, decades uh, in prison for sometimes nonviolent offenses and that sort of thing. But uh, you often hear the statistic that, you know, the United States makes up 5% of the world's population, but we hold 25% of its incarcerated people. Um, so we're thinking about this felony uh, prison population, which is about 2 million people a year, are, are held in uh, state and federal prisons throughout the United States. And that is certainly a big number. But it's only part of the story about mass incarceration. Uh, approximately 11 million people uh, are held in jails in the United States uh, throughout a year. Uh, many of these people have not been convicted of a crime, and men spay, may, uh, excuse me, may spend weeks or months in there before they even have their day in court. Um, a majority of these people are in for misdemeanor charges, which cover serious crimes like DUI and domestic violence, but also minor crimes like paying, not paying a ticket or jaywalking. Um, many people who never even make it to jail have antagonistic uh, contact with the police through like pretextual stops, stop and frisk, and that sort of thing, and petty enforcement of infractions like on the street, like loitering. Um, this builds the number of people who have even incidental contact with our criminal system to in maybe the tens of millions. So today, to talk about this massive system and its effects on societies, we have with, we have with us Alexander Nadipov, uh, author of the book uh, Punishment Without Crime, uh, how, how Our Massive Misdemeanor System Traps the Innocent and Makes America More Unequal. She's a professor of law at UC Irvine School of Law. Her scholarship has won numerous awards, including the 2016 Guggenheim Fellowship, uh, the 2013 Law and Society Association Article Prize, and two outstanding scholarship awards from the AALS Criminal Justice Section. Professor Natapoff is also the author of Snitching, Criminal Informants and the Erosion of American Justice, which won the ABA Silver Gavel Award for an honorable mention for books and earned her national recognition as an uh, expert on criminal informants. She's a member of the American Law Institute, and in 2015, she was appointed as an advisor to the LI, ALI Policing Project. Prior to joining the Academy, Professor Natapoff served as an assistant federal public defender in Baltimore and was a re recipient of the Open Society Institute Community Fellowship. She clerked for the Honorable David S. Tattel, U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and the Honorable Paul L. Friedman, U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C. Please welcome Professor Natapoff. Thank you so much for coming. I really loved your book, and all of my colleagues learned so much from reading it. Um, we tend to think of like the criminal justice system and the misdemeanor system singularly, but it's actually a system of a vast number of jurisdictions, agencies, and uh, other criminal institutions. Um, they don't really coordinate or release this data in any sort of central way. Can you talk about like the data, how you collected the data for this, and this like how big this project really is? Sure. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. Thank you all so much for spending some time today to think about this issue. Uh, you're right, even though I use the term system in the subtitle of the book, I use it advisedly, it is a metaphor. 
we don't have a criminal system in this country. Uh, criminal justice in the United States is highly localized. It is really thousands of local and state and county institutions, prosecutor's office, public defender's offices, sheriff's departments, cities, uh, local governments, all of which are working together, sometimes in a coordinated fashion, sometimes at odds, uh, to do their own, uh, their own jobs and their own ecosystems. And taken together, the result of all these many thousands of institutions is what we, what we live with, the, the social policy, the institutional reality that we end up with as our criminal system. Misdemeanors, uh, low-level offenses, make up about 80% of that system. Uh, as a result of the data that I collected for this, uh, this book, I conclude that approximately 13 million misdemeanor cases are filed in this country every year, as compared to, for, uh, by contrast, three or four million state felony offenses. We always knew the misdemeanor system was bigger than the felony system, but I think it has been, very, it has been um, surprising and persuasive to people to realize just how enormous the misdemeanor system is. This is what our criminal system does most of the time. And as, uh, as you point out, it's opaque. We don't keep very good track of it. States and localities do not, uh, often do not keep very good data on something as simple as how many criminal cases have they filed that year, the, the very basic metric of how big our system is. So in order to write this book, a few years before I started it, I realized that we had very little national data on the size and the scope and the nature of the misdemeanor system. So I set out to, to discover what I could find on the public record. Uh, there's an entity called the National Center for State Courts, a wonderful nonprofit entity. It's not a governmental entity. Uh, that collects data from states and localities on a voluntary basis. So if they want to give that data to the National Center for State Courts, they, they can. Uh, that center co collects data from several dozen, but not all states. Uh, and other than that, we don't have very good data at all about, um, about how our misdemeanor system works. So I sent a records request to every state. The, every state has something called the... Um, Administrative Office of the Court, the AOC, and I sent them a letter requesting their misdemeanor docket data. Uh, I could have written a book just about the range of responses I got to that letter uh, across the country, but suffice it to say that, it, that some states gave me spreadsheets, and Oklahoma never returned my call. Um, and, and everything imaginable in between. Most states have a website with an annual judicial report and in that report, there is one number for what that state estimates its total misdemeanor filings for the previous year is, but not always. And every state counts that number differently. And so in addition to the National Center for State Courts and that records request, I gathered, and, and I've been writing about misdemeanors for a number of years now, I gathered the largest pile I could. Every report, every um, uh, budget request that I could find publicly, every uh, nonprofit NGO report on a particular jurisdiction, uh, every, um, every newspaper article, every inquiry into the scope of this entity that I could find, I put it all together. For those of you who are interested, it's all in the appendix <laughs> um, if you want to check my math. Um, 
And, that, and the result of that research is the 13 million number that I told you. But I think more profoundly, more importantly, I hope that it's support for people to look more deeply into their states, to, to not have to reinvent the wheel, to take the information that does exist that I was able to find, and to, and to push our system to be more transparent. So when we think of having a criminal record, you know, we try to think about, it's like it's, we, it's a blame of wrongdoing. It is a public condemnation of, of, of this behavior. But it seems to me that these convictions and these arrests aren't really always morally blameworthy. It's not, it's not the same thing. It's like, oh, if this guy, you know, he, he robbed a house or he hurt someone, that, that's really, that's, you know, that deserves the condemnation. But that's not really what's going on for millions of Americans, is it? So the chances that everyone in this room committed a misdemeanor in the last 24 hours is not trivial. It's not hard to do. It's, it's likely that all of us have, in the last period of time, loitered, trespassed, jaywalked, in some jurisdictions, spit. Maybe you gambled. Um, there are so many ways to violate this vast net of, the, of criminalized conduct that we have created through the misdemeanor system. And so one of the things that I learned from writing this book, and one of the takeaways that I, that I hope uh, people get from the book, is to see how we have taken this notion of criminal, this extremely important notion that we have laws that promote public safety, that protect the public uh, well-being, that, that when people violate those rules, or murder, or rape, or aggravated assault, that the system permits us to um, make judgments about that conduct, that that conduct is blameworthy, yes. that it's harmful, that it, has some, that it has weight to it, that at the end of the day, most importantly, justifies the state's coercive authority to punish. Because that's what the criminal code does. It confers upon our government the vast authority to reach into our lives, to violate our privacy, our liberty, even take our lives, our property, under the aegis of criminal law. And what we have done is we have so over-criminalized common conduct, the conduct that all of us might occasionally engage in, conduct that is often not harmful, uh, a conduct that is routinely victimless, and we have called it criminal. And so when people are given a conviction under those circumstances, they are now criminals. But I want to suggest that that really is it's a misuse of the word, or maybe, maybe a watering down of a very important concept that, that I think we have great, uh, great need and incentives to preserve the integrity of what it is we mean when we, when we call each other criminal. Um, and another term you use in the book is for misdemeanor is the petty offense, like the petty offense system. And you, you wrote, the petty offense process starts punishing people before they get to court. It keeps punishing them long after they have completed their court-imposed sentences. It can even punish those who are never convicted of anything. So we're punishing people before we even get them, we, before we even convict them. Could you explain exactly how that happens? You might even say we're punishing them without crime. Indeed. <laughs> Um, so, so that's a nice, uh, a nice description of, of why, so, so why I titled the book uh, in this way. Our criminal system is punitive above and beyond the sentences that are imposed by law by a judge. Uh, we, as, as we have come to know, I think, in this, in this very important debate that we're having nationwide now about pretrial detention and bail, 
we now know that if someone is arrested on an offense, they may go to jail and spend days, weeks, months, pre-trial. By hypothesis, they are presumed innocent. They have not been convicted of anything. And the reason that they stay in jail, subject to that incarceration, is because they can't afford money bail. They're too poor to pay the, the um, amount set by the court. Uh, as, as some of you may know, many jurisdictions have what, what are called bail schedules. In other words, it's just, it's just a matrix. Loitering, $500. Trespassing, $1,000. It's not based on the culpability or dangerousness or risk of flight of the actual individual. It's just a, it's just a bureaucratic shorthand. Now people are in jail being punished, if you will, without having been convicted of a crime. I should note that the Supreme Court has held this practice to be constitutional by redefining what we might think of as punishment. The court has said that pretrial detention is not punitive, it is merely regulatory. That's why we can do it. If it were punitive, we would have to wait to convict them before we could impose punishment. Due process requires that. But because it is merely regulatory, the Constitution permits it. As you, uh, yes. as you mentioned, um, we, uh, our misdemeanor system is enormous and sloppy. We often convict people of crimes that they haven't actually committed. And then because of the many, many consequences of sustaining a misdemeanor conviction, people who are convicted and may have paid their fines and fees or served their time will continue to be punished in their employment prospects, in their housing prospects, in their educational project, uh, prospects, on their, on their credit report long after they've paid their debt to society. And so we're taking this, we're using the system that we call a justice system, and we're assigning blame to people, you know, regardless of, you know, whether their, uh, their conduct was particularly blameworthy. Um, we have the system that doesn't really seem to preserve what we would consider our due process constitutional rights. But it's, it's a system that just keeps churning people out that I, I, my boss, called, Clark Neely, kind of calls it a wood chipper justice. You just sort of throw stuff in and, and the convictions come out. And, but we're, we're thinking of blame as what the system is trying to do. But we can think of blame in another way. So when we think of when things go wrong, particularly when it comes to injustice, we think we, it's easier to think of like there's a bad guy behind it. Like, you know, you know there's you know, Nazis and the dictators in, like globally. But in the American context, you think of like the segregation of senators that prevented civil rights going through. You've got Bull Connor sicking dogs on peaceful women and children protesting for their rights, right? But here we have this system that it certainly has some bad actors in it, but it seems to be, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is someone like holding the strings trying to make this happen. It's sort of like um, this bureaucratic system that seems to be feeding it. So can you talk about the incentives on how that sort of works? Sure. Well, we're, we're in Washington, DC, so you probably are all experts on the bureaucracy and how it tends to self-perpetuate. That often the, the, the very real motivations for having a bureaucracy in the first place, the principles underlying having any particular bureaucracy can wane as the bureaucracy itself starts to um, build up speed uh, and, and uh, uh, move into the mode of self-perpetuation rather than carrying out its own principles. And I think in many ways, this is what we've seen throughout our criminal justice system, um, that it has become so enormous, uh, so professionalized, so... Um, uh, and so entwined with so many aspects of our economy and revenue generation, we can talk about that in a little bit, 
that it has become dissociated from that core issue, that core moral issue of who should we be punishing, who really counts as a criminal, what do we mean by public safety, and should we really be using this uh, uh, most powerful governance tool, one of the most powerful governance, most powerful, violent, coercive, and intrusive governance tools that we have to be doing the work of moving people off a street corner to be doing the work of um, managing homeless people with mental disabilities. Should we really have turned this bureaucracy over to this, um, you know, over to these tasks? And I think that what we hear, in, what we increasingly hear as we empower these issues and as we empower people within these bureaucracies is we hear them pushing back. We hear police saying, you know, I don't want to labor under an arrest quota. I think it pressures me into making unfair arrests, Just be, but you're threatening my livelihood. You're threatening my promotion. I can't raise my family on this salary unless I get that promotion, but you're pressuring me to do my job in inappropriate ways. We hear from prosecutors and public defenders alike that they labor under enormous caseload that they can't possibly, that they can't possibly adjudicate in the ways that we want from our criminal system. We hear from judges that they're under pressure from their administrative offices to move their dockets along so that they don't have time to hold motions hearings. They don't have time to adjudicate those issues. So, so yes, the problem is one of bureaucracy, but, but I think it's also important to remember that each of those bureaucrats is also a human being, many of whom came in to this project with, with commitments and ideals. Uh, and, and that another way of understanding the loss, the injustices of our misdemeanor system is understanding that we're not even letting people, police and public defenders and prosecutors, do be their best selves within this system. Um, and you just alluded to what I wanted to talk about next. Um, you know, the, in the part of the title, it talks about how it makes, the justice system makes America more unequal. And you talk about how it, the criminal justice system has been transformed in many places into an economic engine. Uh, can you explain like how how that works and what what that looks like? Yes, of course. So 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 our misdemeanor system uh, uh, increases inequality on the on across two our two main axes, right? Wealth and race. And ever since the Department of Justice issued its report on the Ferguson Police Department, I think that our community, our nation, has been on notice, has been shocked into the realization that all too often our misdemeanor system has in effect become a regressive tax mechanism. It has become a vehicle for funding the very institutions that make up the criminal system itself. So prosecutor's office, public defender's office, sheriff's departments, municipalities, local municipalities, states, governments themselves often rely on the millions and millions of dollars that are generated by these low-level fines and fees, thereby creating perverse incentives within the enforcement structure itself to broaden the net, to bring more people in, not because they're a threat to public safety, not because they're morally um, problematic or culpable or dangerous, as you said, uh, but because they need the money. All right. Um, so when we... Again, another part of the, t the title where he talks about how the, you know, it traps the innocent. And it, I think there are uh, 
two different ways we think about the innocence. We already talked about the first part, which is you're being held pretrial. You haven't been convicted of everything. You're being held in a cage and being subjected to everything that our, our jails are. And the, 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 the state of our jails is, you know, uh, absolutely miserable. But uh, talk about how the way that the system works can basically prevent, I mean, excuse me, uh, cause wrongful convictions, you called them, the sort of, it, the way it invisibilizes uh, wrongful convictions. Yeah, so, so, so the more we learn about the misdemeanor system, the more it makes sense that it would generate wrongful convictions. It's enormous, it's sloppy, it's low resource, it's opaque, it's uh, moving quickly, and it puts pressure on everyone, defendants to plead guilty, public defenders to move their clients along, prosecutors to move those dockets along, and judges to process, in way, in, uh, which means that cases, we do not scrutinize the evidence. We don't check to make sure that people who are arrested are actually guilty of the offense for which they are being charged, because the whole system has, um, uh, has sort of ratcheted up the pressure to process cases more quickly. So if you think about the system that way, you go, well, of course it's going to get it wrong. Uh, because it's not really designed to be rigorous and careful about, about its evidentiary outcomes. And then more specifically, um, you know, there are going to be different aspects of the misdemeanor system that are going to be more or less prone to wrongful conviction. And, and of course, all of, this, all of this conversation about the system, which I already admitted to you at the very beginning is a metaphor, right? There is no one system, which means it doesn't always operate the same way. Federal misdemeanor, a misdemeanor case that occurs in federal court is handled very, very differently, um, you know, than a loitering charge in Baltimore. Um, we, you know, there's a vast array of difference. Um, but there are certain arenas within the misdemeanor system where, where we can predict with some certainty that it's going to be more likely to lead to wrongful conviction. So just as a couple of examples, uh, there was a, a, a wonderful series, wonderful reporting disturbing outcome um, in uh, ProPublica and the New York Times a couple of years ago. Maybe some of you saw it about the, the, uh, the $2 drug, uh, roadside drug test. So there are these drug tests that police use to do roadside drug tests. They find a substance in a car. They uh, you know, drop it into the tube. If the tube turns, I forget what the color is, it turns pink, it's, uh, you're fine. If it turns blue, it's a controlled substance. The problem is these tests are literally $2. They're extremely cheap. And the manufacturers say, oh, 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 they're not reliable enough for a conviction. They're not designed to be that reliable. You need to take that sample to a, a real forensic lab and have it tested. They're just for arrest. They're just enough for probable cause. That's what they're designed for, and that's what they're used for hundreds of thousands of times every year. The problem is that merely being arrested for a drug offense in the misdemeanor system or in the low-level criminal system, and some of these are low-level felonies, can exert enough pressure on an individual to plead guilty so that that crappy test turns out to be the evidence sufficient to trigger a guilty plea. And we see this over and over again, not, not through any malice, not through any you know, bad intention. It's just that we don't care enough to get it right. Um, in, we were talking about uh, Baltimore a moment ago. In Baltimore, uh, Baltimore police are kind of famous for using loitering as a street clearing mechanism. Some, 
2 in the morning, a group of people are sitting on a street corner, they arrest everyone for loitering. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, um, a, a social control mechanism. The problem is that the Maryland Court of Appeals has explained now that the conduct that people are being arrested for isn't loitering as a matter of law. The, I'm just going to get lawyerly on you for just one moment. I apologize. Um, but the, the definition of loitering in the Baltimore City Code is the offense of impeding the free flow of vehicular or pedestrian traffic after having been warned to desist and having failed to desist. So you can see it's actually sort of challenging to loiter in Baltimore. The statutes need to look like that to preserve their constitutionality, otherwise they'd be void for vagueness. But that's not what people are doing. Now that person goes to jail, they can't afford bail, they plead guilty. That's a wrongful conviction. So the idea is that there's this, we have this enormous system, 13 million cases being processed in these ways, and we can identify spots in this environment where we say, there's going to be a substantial likelihood of wrongful conviction in these arenas. And I, I like the distinction you make there. Where you're talking about, well, the law says this, but what's going on on the street is something completely different. Uh, and I, I want to get into one case you get to, to into a little bit in the book. Um, look, we, were, we started to, talking earlier about uh, bail. You know, on, on paper, it looks like New York has a pretty good bail system, right? that you know, you're supposed to, you know, the, the assumption is that they're going to get out. But in fact, in New York courtrooms, the judge sometimes just disregards that, right? You've just described an aspect of many, many thousands of misdemeanor courts. And, and, and I want to zero in on really the heart of the matter there, which is the, the gap, the enormous gap between the laws that we have on the books and the, um, the practices, the law enforcement and, and adjudicative practices that we actually see in the misdemeanor system. And, and it was one of the challenges in writing this book because you can see how that would be very difficult. It would be difficult to get data on what actually happens in out-of-the-way places like you know, before 2015, Ferguson, um, uh, all these low-level courts around the country. But what people tell us over and over, and I tried to include as many different perspectives and voices as I could in the book to give us just a better sense of what's really going on. Defense attorneys, prosecutors, police officers, defendants, judges, they tell us what really happens is what you described. That there's law, that there's bail law, even good bail law. Um, but under the, in the crucible of the moment of the, of the pressure to move cases along the law, wanes. Uh, it's, it, it's not engaged. We don't have the, the robust adversarial process uh, needed to make law real in those courtrooms. You mentioned New York. Uh, another example I include in the book. In New York, um, and we were talking about loitering a second ago, the, the New York loitering statute uh, some number of years ago was, um, uh, was found to be unconstitutionally vague and st stricken from the code. Uh, there was a report of one, uh, one gentleman who was convicted of loitering six times after the law was declared to be unconstitutional. Because, because there's something about this low-level culture that does not, does not engage the law, sometimes the very good and strong laws that we actually have. So what's the effect of this on, on the people who have to go through it? Because it's not like... Most of the, I don't think most of the people in this room probably have had to deal with this system in, in such a way that it like 
cripples people's lives in a way it can. Can you like describe like as an, what an, an average individual might go through, and you know how that might you know have um, you know kind of a cascading effect on the rest of their lives? So, so, so I want to talk about really the panoply of terrible things that can happen to a person as a result of of a misdemeanor encounter. Everything from losing, of course, your liberty. Uh, you could be jailed or losing your money, your immigration status, your public housing. So Baltimore, for example, um, your, your, uh, a, a low-level misdemeanor offense will per se disqualify you from public housing. Um, uh, of course, it will ruin your credit. If you're saddled with fines and fees and debt, it can, it can um, interfere with providing you know, basic needs for your family. So there's a, just a whole range of consequences that we've been referring to you know, you know, throughout. Uh, but I want to emphasize also the diversity of the misdemeanor population. So 13 million cases is a lot of people. And as does our entire criminal system, it skews poor, it skews people of color, it disproportionately affects people of color. So mostly, um, so low-income people of color, the disadvantaged, the socially disadvantaged can expect a misdemeanor encounter in their lives in many ways is sort of part of being disadvantaged in this country. That's going to be one of the public institutions that you can expect to encounter um, in, your daily, in your daily lives. Uh, ironically, uh, we were talking a, a moment ago about wrongful convictions. Because order maintenance offenses like loitering and trespassing are disproportionately uh, enforced against African-American men. It turns out that African-American men are disproportionately likely to be wrongfully convicted uh, for, for crimes like that. It's sort of one of the ironies of the misdemeanor world. But, but you pointed out that many of the people in this room might or might not be likely to encounter, uh, encounter that system. And I just want to point out um, a fact about overcriminalization that I think many of us have been grappling with now for years. You're a hair's breadth away or your kids are a hair's breadth away, or your neighbor, or your coworker, or someone you, someone you work with, that as we permit the misdemeanor system to expand in this way, as we broaden those codes, as we, when we permit the legal processes um, for, for engaging in this adjudication to become thinner and weaker, it means that net, because it is so easy for us all to commit a misdemeanor. To be pulled in 25 states, speeding is a criminal misdemeanor. Um, uh, those fines and fees, uh, we're, we're all ripe <laughs> for harvest, so to speak. Um, and maybe we can afford the $500 or the $1,000 or the $1,500, but it doesn't make it just, just because we can afford it. So, so uh, the three central chapters of this book are entitled Innocence, Money, and Race. I, I think that that really captures much of the, the heart of the matter, the core of the matter. But, but make no mistake, this is a net that can touch and sweep in people from all walks of life. Uh, if you think about DUI, actually DUI skews wealthy, because the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to have a car. Um, so it's not limited to the truly disadvantaged, uh, uh, even though they are, in some sense, the most, um, you know, the most troubling victims of it. Um, I was thinking more like what a, we talked a little bit before we came up on stage is like what it's like what are the broader 
aspects for like democracy that, that we're talking about. Like what is this system doing to people that maybe have like have an impact on you know how they feel about the system that they're in. I mean it's like if you get caught in the system it seems to me that there isn't a lot that you can do about it, right? Like if say if, you know poor African American young man in southeast DC and you get pulled in, you know, how is that going to like not only just the collateral consequences that we think about, you know, that you know they have trouble getting jobs, public housing all that, but like what's what's the impact, you know, so like socially and politically for the rest of one's life. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked the question that way. So one of the arguments I make in the book is that we should stop thinking about the misdemeanor system as just a criminal system. It's a social institution. It is an incredibly powerful um, array of public policies that impact literally million, 13 million cases every year, millions of people, which means all their families, their communities. It redistributes billions of dollars every year in public and private wealth. It deprives millions of people of liberty every year. It intersects with the economy in terms of people's um, qualifications and ability to work and get jobs. Uh, it, it, uh, it criminalizes poverty in many ways. In effect, it's working at odds with our welfare system. It is, it is stripping the very same people of their wealth that our welfare system is designed to lift out of poverty. So it's a way of saying that this institution needs to be understood as, as one of those enormous governance institutions that redistributes all kinds of public wealth and power um, and access in the same way that we think of education, in the same way that we think of housing, in the same way that we think of the tax system itself. We just haven't given it the scrutiny and attention that it, that it wants, that it deserves. And so when we think about an individual who passes through the social institution, often in ignorance of their rights, swept in by the most coercive, I should say second most coercive arm of the state because the military, if, if, we, if military is number one, then our criminal system is number two. But, but brought into the government, uh, the, the, the governance process in the most coercive and intrusive way possible, in ways where, as, as you pointed out earlier, many of the people in the room, the judge, the public defender, the prosecutor, don't have time to care. They're conveying to that individual that the democratic institutions that are controlling their life and their liberty and their money at that moment don't care about them. I think it's a profoundly corrosive, anti-democratic experience. It need not be that way. We know how to do it better. We know how to do due process. Uh, we know in this country, we know how to enforce the Bill of Rights. We just have, haven't decided to, to do it in this arena. Um, so we talk about these 13 million cases and the 11 million people go into jail. Um, and because all of the systems are so disparate and they they respond to different populaces, do you see a wide variation among states and jurisdictions about how many cases, like how many how many cases they file for? Like, I, 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 in the book, you kind of break it down by like hundreds, of, like a hundred thousand. Um, what what does what do those discrepancies look like? Yes, there are vast discrepancies in the number of cases per capita that different states file. Uh, and there's a table, so, so based on the data, that, the national data that I collected, uh, I put together a comparison to sort of a ranking, or at the top, I think um, Rhode Island is, you know, uh, and there are a couple of states that file, uh, you know, 
10,000, 15,000 misdemeanors per 100,000 of their population every year. And then at the bottom, um, you know, under 1,000. So there's a vast discrepancy. The challenge is it's hard to know what that means. Um, it might mean that these high-rated, these high-rate uh, states are over-criminalizing their populations through misdemeanors and sweeping people in on thin bases. But it could also theoretically mean that they're diverting cases out of the felony system that they've decided, no, we're, gonna, we're, we're, we're not going to treat every um, drug case as a serious felony. We're going uh, to ratchet some of those cases down, as California has engaged in this experiment now for a few years, to ratchet down some of the most punitive felony cases that could be misdemeanors. So, so the fact that a, that a state uses misdemeanors at a high rate, I don't think tells us normatively whether that's a good or a bad thing. We need to dig under that number and ask, who are you deploying these cases against? What kind of cases are they? Are they mostly order maintenance? Or are they domestic violence cases? Um, and that kind of data is very difficult to get. I did ask every state for that data. Very few states had that data available. But I think the next step and many researchers are now looking towards this, and some and NGOs are looking to get this kind of data. The next step is to ask, how is this state policy being deployed? Against whom? Under what circumstances? And then we might have a better sense of what, that, uh, what those numbers mean. Cool. So um, Cato is a libertarian think tank. Uh, for many, many years, we've hammered away at the war on drugs. We, we say this is, this is a, a, a crux in the in the criminal justice system that is completely unfair, that's virtually victimless. And, uh, but this is a major reason why a lot of people you know, run into contact with, with, the, with the justice system. Um, I've seen recently, I mean, the, the, the progress we've made, particularly marijuana reform, has been inc incredible. You know, uh, a majority of states in the union now have at least medical marijuana in their, in their state laws. Um, you know, about, I think it's half of the population lives in, a place with recreational marijuana that is legal. Um, those markets vary considerably. But we tried, to, we were thinking like, oh, things are going well. I mean, it's going so well that in Alabama recently, their judicial committee within, the, within their state legislature passed, a, uh, unanimously passed a decriminalization of marijuana uh, bill, which, you know, if you had told me that 10 years ago, I'd have said you're out of your mind. So we're, we're making a lot of progress in, 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 that, in that one area of the drug war. But you write in, uh, in the book that decriminalization and legalization are not the same thing, and a decriminalization may, in fact, be a double-edged sword. Could you talk about why that is? Sure. Well, so let's start with the definition of decriminalization. Decriminalization, as opposed to legalization, does not render conduct permissible. It's still illegal to possess marijuana. It's still illegal to speak in states that have decriminalized their traffic code. It's still forbidden conduct. What it means is that you can't, essentially, that you can't go to jail for it, at least not up front. And I say not up front because we know that many people who can't pay the upfront fines and fees for those non-criminal, so we sometimes call them non-jailable misdemeanors or decriminalized misdemeanors, they end up incarcerated anyway when they can't pay the fines and fees. But decriminalization typically means that we take incarceration as an upfront punishment off the table. And it, is, and it is truly a double-edged sword in the sense that on the one hand, it is exactly the direction we should be going in. 
we should be using jail less, we should be using cages less, we should be incarcerating fewer people, um, especially for these low-level offenses where ulti the ultimate sentence is often a sentence of jail of time served or people wouldn't be going to jail anyway. No one thinks that people should be locked up in, in a cage for loitering um, on the merits. So decriminalization in that sense reduces the punitiveness and the impact and the intrusiveness of the criminal system um, in exactly the right way. Except, <laughs> um, except that, that it's still, it still, it preserves the intrusive apparatus of the state. The state is still reaching in to our low-level conduct, our private lives, our, our, our private decisions, um, and still punishing people in ways that become, can become profoundly disparate. And once we understand decriminalization next to the phenomenon of fines and fees, next to the revenue-generating incentives of the criminal system itself, we can see how decriminalization can open up a very problematic door where decriminalized offenses become um, a, a new means of revenue generation. And who is that going to affect the most? The people who can't afford those fines and fees. So as we were saying a minute ago, decriminalize um, uh, marijuana in a particular jurisdiction, let's say the fine is, the initial fine is $500. And many of these offenses are stacked. So it's a $500 fine. If you don't pay it in 30 days, it triples to $1,500. If it, you don't pay that in three months, now you're incarcerated. So, there, so for people who cannot pay, it's not actually avoiding incarceration. It's actually postponing it. Um, and so this is not an argument against decriminalization. Uh, I think it's a very, very important tool in our arsenal for reform and retraction, as you just described. But I think but we need to be very careful about the way it's implemented and to make sure that it's not a secret, regressive tax masquerading, essentially, as progressive uh, criminal policy reform. Yeah, when I, when I first got into the criminal justice space and uh, early, my early days at Cato, I think I was an intern when I first found this out. Because uh, this, this, you know, stop and frisk is a big deal in New York City. And so just the way this works, I was completely astounded to learn that New York City decriminalized marijuana in 1976. It's still a law. But what they would do in stop and frisk is pull, they would, you know, ask people to, you know, they'd pat them down and ask them to empty their pockets. And then they would pull the marijuana out of their pockets, and now it's brandishing, and that's a crime. So we have, in, 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 many, in many of these places, we have a problem where the law, even when it's reformed, and we're trying to, and just echoing what, what Alexandra was saying, that we have a change in law, and that's always good, and we should push for that. But we really need to have a change in policy, it, whether this is at the, at the policing level, because this is where the, all the inputs come in, right? Um, whether it's at the courtroom level or uh, as in, after conviction, if someone's convicted in the collateral consequence, we need to roll back some of, some of those rules. Um, but we've been focusing a lot on the, like, the bad parts. <laughs> we've been going with all these really, um, uh, the negative aspects of, of our system. But you, you're optimistic. You, you seem hopeful. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you think we need to do that where we can really make change? It could be a personality flaw, so you never know. <laughs> um, 
I think things change in the misdemeanor system all the time. And they change in different directions. So we've talked a lot. The takeaway from this book is that we should shrink the misdemeanor system. I'm just going to tell you the punchline right now. So if you don't want to buy the book, it's fine. It needs to be smaller. We need to stop using the misdemeanor system for all these other social tasks, for redistributing wealth, for enforcing gentrification, for managing the homeless, for clearing corners, um, so that it can do the things we want it to do. So I want to, I want to tell a couple of different stories about reform. So if you, if you think about Mothers Against Drunk Driving, right, that's a story of misdemeanor reform. For years, driving under the influence was treated like a speeding ticket. It was, it was seen as a non, it wasn't harmful, it wasn't dangerous, it was no big deal. And through misdemeanor reform, we were persuaded that the misdemeanor system should step up to change how we conceptualize the culpability and the harm and the danger of that particular um, part conduct. Same with domestic violence. Uh, until the 1970s, the courts and the police and the prosecutors were hands off as a private matter. We persuaded the misdemeanor system that this was culpable, harmful, dangerous conduct that the, that the state had an obligation to intervene in. So, so that's also misdemeanor reform. It's, it's understanding that sometimes there is culpable or harmful conduct that requires state intervention, but that doesn't necessarily rise to the level of, a, of, a, of incarceration or a felony, but we need some form of intervention. But because we've the, we permitted the misdemeanor system to become so bloated, to, to, to do all this other work, um, we've, we've, I think we've eroded its capacity to do more narrow work well. And so we have seen, um, I think, all kinds of exciting pushback, all kinds of exciting change. So we've just been talking about decriminalization. Of course, that's one of the great um, exciting uh, uh, pieces of progress and victory in the misdemeanor system to, to shrink that system, to reduce its punitive footprint. We are seeing pushback against cash bail all over the country. Uh, it was initially through litigation, through lawsuits, because the system was a little recalcitrant. It didn't want to change. Now it's like popcorn all over the country. Legislators are taking it up. Uh, commissions are taking it up, as well as uh, ongoing, ongoing um, litigation. There are lawsuits now challenging prosecutors who charge indigent defendants for diversion. So to explain what that means, if you're charged with a crime, a prosecutor might say, I'm going to offer you a diversion program. We're going to put your case on hold, so to speak. Um, and if you, if you meet various conditions for six months or a year, we'll drop the case so you can avoid that criminal conviction, right? Great. Except that prosecutor offices around the country are charging defendants who can't afford it hundreds, even thousands of dollars for the privilege of engaging in the program. So that, that's that insidious revenue incentive. They're cre creeping into what we might otherwise think of as a decarcerative um, uh, uh, reform. Uh, NGOs and, and civil rights organizations are, not, are filing lawsuits to push back. They're pushing back against uh, the criminalization of poverty through the suspension of driver's licenses. Again, all over the country, we're seeing these lawsuits and reforms in which uh, states are e either under pressure from a lawsuit or deciding sua sponte on their own. You know, we shouldn't be depriving people of their ability to work and take their children to school and, and go to the doctor's office because they can't pay a traffic ticket. 
which is why most people have a suspended license. So, and, which takes us back full circle to, to your first question to me, which is, is this really a system? Because it's so localized, we don't need to wait for the Supreme Court. We don't have to wait for Congress. We don't have to wait for you know, the big red magic button in Washington to push the change button to fix everything. Because localities can change any time they want. Groups of citizens can come together to lobby their city council, to work with their prosecutor's offices, to make local change. And because our criminal system is local, that change is profoundly meaningful. Excellent. So I, just to kind of contextualize even further, um, one of the, the handout that we are giving away as long as, and also as we said, the book is for sale afterwards and uh, Alexander has agreed to sign if you buy a copy. Well, uh, the, the handout is a, the review of the book that I wrote. And when I was writing the review, one of the things that I had come up with, that I, that I, had, that I wanted to show was how this uh, criminalization, and particularly with the driver's license suspension, works in practice. And I don't think there is really a more illustrative example than the case of Philando Castile. Now, many people might be familiar with his name. He was one of the black motorists that was shot by police. Uh, he was in Minnesota. He had, um, he, you know, he was a lawful concealed carry permit owner. So that by itself lets you know that he was, by and large, a law-abiding citizen. Um, there's nothing about his driving record that would explain that would make you think that he was a particularly bad driver. Um, but before that fateful day when he was pulled over that that last time, he had been pulled over 49 times in 10 years. And many of those times, the, the worst thing he ever did, he, he exceed, exceeded the speed limit once. Um, he ran one stop sign, and er, everything else was either for uh, not wearing a seatbelt or some other, you know, very subjective, very vague traffic violation um, that basically, it, it was in the eyes of the beholder. It wasn't like he was going seven miles an hour, seven to ten miles over the speed limit or anything like that. Just doing re regular things. He, his license was susp suspended several times. But of course, it's Minnesota, and it's, it's suburban Minnesota. There isn't a robust uh, internal like, um, uh, public transit system. So for him to get the work to pay off those fines, he had to drive. And there was, a, there was a period during this time where he was pulled over in, you know, I think five times in a week. And this is a punitive system that was extracting from him. He had, he had suffered what uh, civil forfeiture. So not only was he getting pulled over and he was ticketed, but they had, they had taken property from him as well. 49 times. He was victimized many more times before he was killed at that, the side of that road. This is what our system does. This is what our system looks like. Now, not every city is like this. But it is in these small suburbs. This is, the, this is again, another example of the Ferguson effect that she had, uh, not the Ferguson effect, sorry. That's, that's something a little different. But the, the effect of that Ferguson, the DOJ Ferguson study that showed that these municipalities drive, that uh, they extract money from their residents to keep the government going at all. So we need to come up with different funding mechanisms uh, as, as far as that's concerned. Um, so you talked a lot about order maintenance policing uh, and sort of how, how that works. Isn't that like sort of like the major driver for a lot of this? I mean, it's basically the police officers are going out into the communities and they're being tasked to, you know, even if they're not going for revenue, 
like they're making a lot of unnecessary contacts. Um, do you have like any suggestions? Like, do we just tell them not to do it, or is like how how do we how do we change their incentives there? Yeah, thank you for sharing that story, and thank you for the review, of course. Um, so order when we talk about order maintenance crimes, we mean um, uh, uh, loitering and trespassing and disorderly conduct. But but I think your point is well taken. Sometimes we also mean driving. Yeah. So for example, in Los Angeles, no one walks <laughs> any place. Order maintenance policing, racially disproportionate order maintenance policing, takes place on the highway. That's where people are being disproportionately stopped. Uh, African American and Latinx individuals are being disproportionately stopped, just as you describe in the Philando Castile case. And so I think there, so order, there are constellations of low-level offenses like order maintenance, like traffic stops, that uh, even if they're not the numeric, that they're not driving the numeric bulk of the system, they are driving the bulk of its injustice. These are the racially skewed stops and rests and targets. These are the um, effects that are skewed by wealth. They're disproportionately burdensome on the poor and people who can't pay those fines and fees. And so th this, is, this is, and therefore, as I argue in the book, this is the place where reform needs to be directed. This is the place where we should scale back. We will get the most justice bang for our buck to scale back the system in the places where it is most inequitable so that it can continue to do the things that we want it to do in a more narrow, focused, traditionally criminal and law um, and law-abiding way. And, uh, and I, I, I fully agree because so much. If you look at a lot of the major cities uh, and the way, because my my major focus here at Cato is working on what we call self-defeating policing, and that is we're engaging in these. Uh, we're asking police to do these things that actually erode the relationship with the communities. I doubt that Philando Castile had a very high opinion of the police departments that stopped him 49 times, right? Th that, those have cascading effects insofar as like how people feel within the, the body politic. And the thing is, we're de dedicating so many resources through policing to enforcing these rules, we are not actually, that, that's taking resources away from other places. We have finite resources. Um, one of the problems with asset forfeiture is uh, that it allowed the police departments to start funding themselves. And so that's where, the, that, when there was a budget crunch, that's where a lot of municipalities and, and, and other governments put, uh, directed their police to go find that money, to go get that money. Well, what do you think is more important? The fact that we got some money off of Philando Castile or the fact that in many circumstances, in many cities, we're not, our homicide rate clearance is, is awful. If you read stories, or, um, if you look at the book um, Ghetto Side by Jill Ovia, she was a journalist out in, in Los Angeles, she, she uh, talked about how, what I call the Leovi paradox, where black communities are over-policed and under-policed at the same time. So they're very, they're over-policed for these, these order maintenance offenses that we're, that we're talking about, you know, petty drug possession, loitering, all, all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, the murder clearance rate in, in many cities, particularly in the black areas, is abysmal. In, in Chicago, over a 10-year period from 2005 to 2015, I believe, there, there was arrest made in a homicide case 26% of the time. 
you have a 75% chance of getting away with murdering a black person in Chicago. That's how bad it is. And so this is really about an allocation of resources that police departments need to really internalize and people need to understand that this is what their police departments need to do, that, that they need to refocus their energies, that it, when they're in, uh, when they're taking these, they're, they're putting their police resources in finding money instead of actually funding the homicide department, being able to uh, work with the community to get the information and get the clues that they want to, to catch the homicide victims. Because unfortunately what happens is this order maintenance policing it, it uh, gets people so that they don't want to, ref it makes people not want to cooperate with police officers. It, last year in, in D.C., uh, there was a 10-year-old girl shot in Northeast. And uh, she, it was, these four guys jumped out of a car and they just sort of just started shooting randomly. It was a very gruesome and terrible crime and I, I, I don't even know what made them do it. There, there was video of it. But the, the, the one casualty was a 10-year-old girl. And the news cameras went into the neighborhood and started asking about what was going on and what happened. And there was, there was a man there, and they're like, he, he asked him, so what are you doing about, the, what, what are you doing about this problem, this, this crime? Are you, are you cooperating with the police? And he's like, you know what? We don't know anything, but if we did, we wouldn't tell the police because it's just another gang. And I happen to have a lot of respect for Metro Police Department, but that is the DC Metro Police Department, but that is a broken relationship that this sort of policing is causing in, in black communities and, and impoverished communities throughout this country. And I think it's very important that when we talk about these systems, we're talking about these minor crimes, but this actually has a cost well beyond, you know, just whether or not an individual who is caught up in the system, it has an effect on the rest of policing. You know, let me, let me just follow up because it's such an important point. I just want to double down on it for a second. And, and I want to go back to the point you made earlier about how in these communities, they're suffering from both over-enforcement, so over-enforcement of misdemeanors, over-enforcement of these order maintenance offenses, and under-enforcement, under-enforcement of homicide laws, of serious crimes. So, so people are both unsafe in precisely the way that the criminal system is supposed to protect us, but also... Uh, over-policed and, uh, and uh, uh, overburdened by the intrusiveness and the coercion of the criminal system. And I, and I just want to point out what that tells us. And, and, and I write this in the book, and I've, and I've written about this elsewhere, that over-enforcement and under-enforcement are not cures for one another. In other words, when I say we should shrink the misdemeanor system, I'm not saying less, um, that we should have less public safety. Uh, and... and when we say, uh, when we point out, as Giliovi does, that homicide is under-enforced, we're not saying, so now let's blanket the community and police and stop everyone. Over-enforcement and under-enforcement are flip sides of the same coin, the same failure, the same, I would call it, the same democratic failure that we have not gotten policing right as a whole in these communities. So in wealthy communities, we expect to be neither under-enforced nor over-enforced. If there's a homicide, we expect the police to step up, and we don't expect to be frisked on our way to Gelson's. And, and it's that balance that is the measure of democratically responsive policing, and it is that that's missing in so many of the communities. And so um, those are both, over-enforcement and under-enforcement, Enforcement are both symptoms, they're both indicia 
uh, in what I think uh, of as the same underlying dysfunction. Absolutely. Um, so you covered so much ground in you know not very many it, not very many pages. It is. Uh, it's a very accessible book. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, we've got it for $19 upstairs. Um, how, you know, what was the most surprising thing that you saw, that you, that you found while you were like, researching this book? The whole thing is surprising. I was just constantly surprised. Oh my God, it's so big. Oh my God, it's so sloppy. Oh my God, it violates the Constitution all the time. Oh my God, we have no idea how many. We are, oh my God, we're not keeping track. I'm just constantly shocked that we're running such an enormous swath of our democracy in this way. Um, once we have the information, I think it's easier to reverse engineer the reasons why we go, or we can imagine why that would happen in a low resource, opaque environment where there are, contra, you know, where there are dysfunctional incentives. I think, it's, I think it's shocking that we run so much of our criminal system this way um, across the board. If I speak to, oh, if I speak to him, it's harder. Okay. Thank you for the heads up. I'll, I'll just speak to you for the rest of the <laughs> Thank you. Oh, okay. Um, sorry. Um, so it looks like our uh, Q&A team is getting ready, so we'll open this up. Uh, just a couple rules. Um, we ask that you wait for the microphone to come to you. And uh, then please phrase your question in the form of a question. This is not, uh, we did not invite you here to speak. <laughs> so uh, right here in the front. Oh, and feel free to identify yourself if you, if you like. My name is Steve Hankin. Uh, first, who, who is the author of this? Are you That's right? me. Oh, OK. Because I have a question that's a broad question that kind of comes out of this. You make this statement here, perhaps the most fundamental purpose of criminal laws to pass the condemnation of the community onto someone who has violated the rights of one of its members and the moral foundations of that community. And I certainly understand that's one of the purposes, but don't you think more fundamental purposes of, of criminal law is deterrence of the individual and general deterrence? Because I think once we get into moralizing, we, we then open up these victimless crimes, because obviously that's what they're all about, um, the society wanting moral judgment. And I'm saying, if, don't you think we'd be better off if we stuck to uh, the purposes of deterrence, specific deterrence of the individual committing the infraction, and general deterrence of the society at large? Um, when, I, when I wrote that, it, I meant particularly in like when we're talking about moral crimes versus you know, not like victimless, victimless crimes and that sort of thing, right? So you're, we're talking primarily about, you know, Thou shalt not kill, right? We're talking about you know the the main the, the the main criminal acts that we find morally repugnant. We're not talking about oh I don't agree with you know that kind of relationship or I don't agree with that sort of um, you know that personal conduct. I, I mean primarily the moral crimes that we the, the moral condemnation that the of the crimes against someone else, the violation of someone's rights. I was I was trying to put those two together, right? Right. So yeah. So. 
Um, so I, I didn't want to expand that. But however, as far as like enforcement is concerned, um, criminal enforcement doesn't catch most of the people who commit these, who commit crimes. As we were talking about, everyone's committed probably a misdemeanor sometime in the past few days or week, right? We, we don't want 100% enforcement. And deterrence is a, a tricky thing. So you want, you want to sort of um, make sure that people who commit these moral wrongdoings, uh, we want to deter that through enforcement, but also through the legitimacy of the system. And the, the, unfortunately, I think what, and what uh, Alexandra talks about a lot in her book is that this over-enforcement can delegitimize the system altogether. It, it, it takes away the, um, the morality of the system. We have taken away what was supposed to be this, this person has violated this the strict code of our community, and we're passing judgment, and we're putting that in the sense of a criminal conviction. And that's not the same thing as I'm going to give you, make, brand you a criminal for jaywalking. And that is, and it was like that gap is what I was talking about. So um, I don't know if you want to follow up with anything on there, but. No. Well, the, the, uh, I, the question was directed, you know, to, to, to your comment, but I'll just add, and again, I think Washington, D.C. is the perfect place to point this out. Criminal law is only one tool that we have in our arsenal for deterrence, control, incentivization. We, we have vast um, swaths of our, our government and our social structure available to us to, to deter, to incentivize, to channel people's conduct and behavior, criminal law should be the last resort. It's the most punitive outcome when all else fails, when our administrative apparatus fails, when our social structures fail, when the way we, that we structure cities and institutions and education, when all that fails then we should be turning to our most, um, our most punitive tools, and we don't. We turn to it first. It's one, of, it's one of the reasons that the United States has become infamous internationally for mass incarceration, because we turn to the criminal system as an apparatus of social control more often than any other country on the planet, and that is not necessary. Let me just restate what I was trying to say. What I'm saying is, instead of defining crimes with with regard to this purpose of, of moralizing, of society expressing its moral condemnation, that if we define crimes more in terms of how it will deter, I think we'd be, get rid of a lot of these unnecessary crimes. That's what I was after. I mean, don't you agree with that? At the end of the day, we still have to decide what it is that we want to deter that I don't think we get to skip the ultimate question of what it is we think is bad behavior. We talked about this a little earlier. Is all disorder appropriate for criminalization? I think that's, that's the hardest. And you're right that deterrence is one way that we conceptualize that question. But at the end of the day, we have to decide how much are we going to protect our privacy? How much are we going to protect our liberty from government intervention? And that is not merely a question of deterrence. Uh, in the back on the row, uh, on the row, the gentleman right there. Thank you very much. I agree with so much of what you've been saying. My name is Gary Merritt. I'm in Arlington, Virginia. Um, I wonder, uh, directed uh, to you, Alexandra, uh, 
In the course of your research, have you found localities, jurisdictions, that stand out for how good they are? Uh, is reform standing out somewhere that you've found? Did everyone hear the question? The question is, are there places where reform is working particularly well? Um, so I, I, I found many places where some piece of reform was working well. Not, not comprehensively, not, not necessarily the whole, uh, you know, the whole system, but some places are engaged in decriminalization. Some, people, some places are abolishing cash bail. Some are um, uh, uh, reducing their reliance on, uh, on jail and pretrial detention. Part of the problem is this problem we, we were talking about earlier, which is our lack of data. So if, if there is a jurisdiction that's working perfectly, where no one is complaining, it would be hard for me to know about it. Um, and that's a flaw in the way that we study our criminal system. In the absence of comprehensive data collection and analysis and sort of the professional uh, you know, cost-benefit analysis and data that we, that we would accord to any other, you know, any other government entity or any other state process, we permit so much of the criminal system to remain opaque so then we learn about emergencies, or we learn about terrible things, or we learn when people complain. But, it would be, but it, it's hard to unearth those places where things are working well. The example that I use in the book, and it's because I practice there myself, is, is federal misdemeanor court, which is a highly transparent, regulated, um, counseled, so uh, counseled environment, meaning that uh, unlike many jurisdictions in federal court, Every misdemeanor is appointed counsel, regardless of their ultimate sentence. So they may not, in fact, be facing jail time, but they will get, a, they will get an attorney. Uh, in my experience, there was time to litigate actual legal issues when they came up. Um, and so we have models. We have uh, uh, examples, not just in, in federal misdemeanor court, but all over the country of jurisdictions that are grappling, I would say, with one, one piece of the problem, um, or you know, one, one piece of the puzzle. And so that, to me, is an argument for this, broad, this broader conceptualization of the misdemeanor system as a metaphor. It's one of the reasons I think it's useful. That it's not just a stop and frisk problem. It's not. Uh, just a bail problem. It's not just fines and fees. It's not just debtors' prison. It's not just. It's it's that we have an entire apparatus where all those things are intersecting, and if we want to improve the system, we actually need to keep our eye on all the moving pieces. And, and to underscore her point on data, just as an example of what we don't have and what we don't know, uh, there's the Uniform Crime Report, and then there um, is another federal Bureau of Justice Services. Um, Justice statistics, rather, collect data from police departments all over the country. And one of the things they collect is, how many people did you kill, right? I mean, it's like, we, ha we have this problem. For years, the FBI thought that, we, that pl American police killed about 400 people a year. The Washington Post crowd started crowdsourcing the data and found out it's 1,000. That is something that we were off by more than 100% from what, what, what we thought it was, right? That, that we don't have data so fundamental 
that we know how many people police are, are, are killing every year, when you realize that across the entire spectrum of all these law enforcement agencies that the, there's just so little data about all these other pieces that go into it, it's so difficult for us to try and get. And I, I, what I would definitely suggest is try to get your local government to collect, as much, to collect and publish as much data as possible. Working here at the Cato Institute, we have a lot of com complaints about the government. But one of the things that all my other, all my other colleagues get is they get really great data from the government. And they come to me and they're like, so how many times did a police officer get arrested last year? And I'm like, I have no idea. And then it's that sort of thing that we really need to like harp on data collection. Yeah, and just to follow up on that, for those of you who are interested and in, in folks who are listening, uh, Measures for Justice, as a wonderful nonprofit organization uh, founded just a few years ago, devoted to collecting uh, state and county-based uh, county data for every criminal justice system in the country. And the project, the theory of the project, is that by the time they make their way through every county and every state, that there will be a, a database, a public database, that any researcher any government entity, any PhD student, anybody who wants to delve into that data and analyze that data could access to give us an unprecedented understanding of how it is our criminal system really works. So measures for justice for those of you who are interested in such things. Uh, that gentleman in the back. My name is Mike Geske from the Cause of Action Institute. Um, I have another question about the data. I regret, I can't remember the scientific principle that when you measure something, you will change it. Or as Donald Rumsfeld said, if you measure something, it will improve. It's slightly <laughs> different. Have you seen that effect from your research or from Measures for Justice? Uh, it's a great point. It is the theory behind Measures for Justice. Uh, not only that we could learn vital things about our democracy from the data, but that just collecting it changes the relationship between the public and those government entities. I, I think we see it anecdotally throughout the misdemeanor system. Uh, court watch programs um, are often um, explained as a way for the community to learn more about how the criminal system works. But it changes the behavior of the judges and the prosecutors and public defenders. And not everybody is always happy about having uh, you know, the right to a public trial exercised in their, uh, in their actual courtrooms. Uh, I think that one of the challenges of the misdemeanor system is precisely that it has labored in obscurity. I think we all perform better when we feel like we matter. And I don't think, I think we have not given the misdemeanor system enough blame, but we also have not given it its, its due. We have not told these judges, these prosecutors, these public defenders that what they do is so important. Um, so I, th I think your point is right on. A gentleman back there. Um, I'm just curious about the actual distinction between the, the, the use of the terminology, essentially misdemeanor system versus uh, felony. Uh, just given the, the actual outcomes where at the end of the day people are still talking about misdemeanor convictions 20 years, 30 years you know, past um, and uh, inhibited from living in certain places, you know, financial outcomes, wh what's the actual point of distinguishing between the two? At the end of the day, it's a scarlet letter. Thank you. Uh so I think that's part of the point. What we have seen up until this point is uh, increasing awareness and focus on the felony system, 
without acknowledging that so much of the misdemeanor system imposes that scarlet letter in precisely the same way. We, don't, we haven't invested the resources in, um, in data, in scrutinizing, in criticizing these low-level misdemeanor courts, these low-level misdemeanor offenses, because we have not fully appreciated how much like felonies they actually are. The Supreme Court for many decades now has accorded some lesser modicum of due process to misdemeanors on the theory that they're not as bad. We're not always going to give you a lawyer. You're not entitled to a jury trial. In some of these uh, municipal courts, the Supreme Court has said, from time immemorial, we've permitted these summary proceedings to move like this. And, and part of the effort is to elevate our understanding of exactly what, it mean, what those misdemeanor encounters, even short of conviction, because a misdemeanor encounter that ends in diversion and thousands of dollars worth of debt can be just as devastating in many ways as a conviction. It, it is precisely to elevate what we now call petty and minor to understand that the impact can be as serious as many low-level felonies. Um, so there's a... The, 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 for those, I'm he didn't have the mic. Sorry. The, just to repeat the question, he asked, what's the difference between a misdemeanor and a felony? Why, why make the distinction at all? Correct? So the, I'd say there's two different answers. One is historical. So it's a historical term. It goes back thousands of years to, you know, to, to British, dis, uh, to, to European, continental, and English distinctions in common law um, felonies and, and misdemeanors in which... Felonies used to be defined as, uh, uh, um, as an infamous crime for which a person could be put to death. And misdemeanors were everything else. So obviously, it was, it was, it, there were many serious misdemeanors, including um, you know, kidnapping and witchcraft were, you know, in, in, uh, in uh, 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 old British law. The terms have evolved to mean serious and minor. The idea is that, that, we, that, is that, to take your point, that there should be a distinction and that there is a distinction. <laughs> and we could have a different conversation about both those questions. Sh should there be a distinction between a serious crime and a minor crime, both in terms of the conduct that we prohibit and punish, but also in terms of the impact on the individual? And then the question I take it you're getting at, which is, haven't we really erased that distinction because we punish misdemeanors so powerfully? And I think that both of those questions are on the table. Modern misdemeanor law typically distinguishes between misdemeanors are, are offenses for which a person can serve no more than one year incarceration. That's typically the legalistic cutoff. But even that's flexible. Maryland has three-year misdemeanors. Um, Lots of jurisdictions have misdemeanors that are defined more differently. So you're right, there's no essential line. It is a socially constructed historical line that does all different kinds of work. Have, have I now answered your question? Whew, okay. Down here in the front. So I wanted to, I'm um, Gabriel Greenspan from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. So I wanted to get to your point about how there's such a broad swath of misdemeanors that a lot, if not most, of the people in this room have likely committed a misdemeanor in the not-too-distant past. Um, you know, jaywalking, loitering, things like that. Um, 
And so it kind of seems to me that it's like almost a matter of either the discretion of the police officer or even just a matter of dumb luck if someone gets caught and punished. Now, I wanted to go back. I'm reminded of um, a few years ago under the Obama administration, there was a scandal where the IRS was uh, treating political organizations that um, were not favorable to the administration worse than ones that are. And I wanted to connect that to misdemeanors since there's so much in the way of discretion, in the way of even just dumb luck in terms of who gets caught and punished for many misdemeanors, do you think there is a danger of political discrimination of, you know, Democratic police officers, judges, um, punishing people more harshly simply for being Republicans or Republican judges and police officers for, you know, punishing people simply be more harshly simply because they are Democrats? Do you think that is something that is happening or a danger in the future given the way misdemeanors currently are, are caught and punished? So, so the great biased exercise of discretion that we already see in the criminal system, of course, is based on race. Uh, you can't tell whether I'm a Democrat or Republican, maybe until I open my mouth, but maybe not even then. <laughs> um, but, but you're absolutely right that discretion uh, is the heart of the matter. American criminal law confers an enormous amount of discretion on law enforcement, starting with police, as, you know, as we've been talking about this whole, this whole afternoon. It, 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 it is the police who decide who will be brought into the misdemeanor system at all. Prosecutors then possess un, judicially unreviewable discretion to decide which of those arrests should become criminal cases. In other words, which of those arrestees should become defendants. Um, we, we really get no judicial scrutiny or oversight until people go to trial, which in this country, as many of you probably know, 95% of all the convictions in this country are not the result of a trial, they're the result of a plea. So we have vast discretion at the bottom, almost no oversight, and the mechanism through which our criminal procedure presumes that oversight will eventually happen, that is at trial, almost never happens. Uh, so you might say that, that discretion is the name of the game. Um, race discrimination, of course, is, the, is, the, is perhaps the most famous misexercise of that discretion. Uh, but also the decision of, of which communities to police in the first place, which populations to police. This is what we saw in Ferguson. So there was the dual um, insult, if you will, in Ferguson. Uh, that the city was sending, essentially putting pressure on its police department to go out and police low-income communities of color in order to raise money. Uh, and, uh, and in our democracy, and, and, and I think your, your deeper point is how, do, how does this resonate with the protective structures of our democracy when we permit the misdemeanor system to have this kind of discretionary power to go after politically vulnerable populations we lack the pushback the, and the transparency and the voices that might hold that kind of law enforcement accountable. Uh, and to underlie that point again, uh, there was a case here in DC several years back, it went to the DC Court of Appeals. Uh, Judge Janice Rogers Brown concurred her in her own, in her own opinion, um, where she, was, she never mentioned race once, but if you know anything about DC, you know she was talking about race. What she was talking about was the gun recovery unit, uh, what we call jump out cars, going into southeast DC, jumping out, and at, sometimes at gunpoint, 
asking for consent to search young black men for guns. And, she, and basically she said, uh, try that in Georgetown and see how far it gets you. Um, but, because, but she had to concur in saying, well, yeah, this is legal because the Supreme Court says it's legal and therefore I can't, you know, I can't do anything about it. But that selective enforcement that the DC police is, is using has racial disparate impact even though there is no you know, intentional reason that, uh, that the Fourth Amendment should not be different in Southeast than it is in Georgetown. All right, right here in the front. Thank you, David Sobelson, Washington, D.C. Can you assess the impact of the 1990s broken windows movement on the problem that you identify in your book? So for those of you um, who are less familiar with the phenomenon, broken windows refers to a theory of policing um, that essentially advocates, the idea is that a broken window on a house invites disorder, and disorder invites crime. And so the metaphor is extended to policing, and, the, and it led to the rationalization for heavy, heavy enforcement of low-level offenses. So it's one of the reasons we call it order maintenance, policing, uh, disorderly conduct, loitering, trespassing. The idea is not that these particular forms of conduct are particularly harmful or, or wrong or bad, but that by cracking down on them, they will reduce crime up the food chain and therefore, in that way, indirectly promote public safety because it will lead to less burglaries, less robberies, less guns, less uh, violent offenses. That was the theory. And uh, that theory was embraced in the 1990s by uh, a number of, any number of jurisdictions around the country, but most famously New York. And there has been a robust, roiling, unresolved, empirical debate over whether it's true. In other words, whether the theory holds true. Is it really true if you arrest, as New York did, hundreds of thousands of people of color, which is what they did, for loitering and trespassing, that serious crime will go down and neighborhoods will become uh, more safe. And one of the confounding variables in that discussion was that at the end of the 1990s, crime rates in New York fell. And so, the, so Bill Bratton and, um, uh, and the proponents of uh, Broken Windows said, see, it worked. The problem is that crime rates fell all over the country, even where they weren't doing broken windows. And so, so I'm not an empiricist. You know, I, at very best, the data remains contested. I don't think anybody has, has answered the, the, the question definitively one way or another. But what has, I think, been definitively established is that the costs in policing, legitimacy, the damage to communities, and then the millions of convictions and uh, the burdens of punishment imposed largely on people of color because broken windows was disproportionately um, uh, uh, um, enforced against people of color, that that has been astronomically costly in terms of um, the trajectories of these individual lives, families, and communities, that, that it has been a, a way of suppressing um, economic growth and personal thriving in those communities that uh, because the phenomenon was so clearly tied to racial profiling, it has uh, devastated 
um, for, I should say, further devastated, further undermined relationships between uh, low-income communities and the police, where just a few minutes ago we were talking about how necessary it is to have democratically accountable policing in precisely those neighborhoods, and this was, this was a, 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 a caustic, undermining uh, uh, feature of, that, of our ability to do that. Um, of course, so New York was the subject of numerous civil rights lawsuits uh, in which it, it was found that the practice was unconstitutional because it was, it was intentionally racially biased, so it was struck down. Uh, uh, broken windows policing has been scaled back in many jurisdictions, largely because, not because anybody, uh, because some empirical study determined that it was right or wrong, but because many communities have decided that it was more costly in terms of the devastation of communities and individual lives and the legitimacy of the criminal system than it was worth. It was hard to demonstrate any, um, uh, any real benefits in public safety. But what it did do, and, 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 and it goes to your question, what it did do is it vastly expanded the misdemeanor net. It swept in millions of people. It expanded that apparatus. It grew the state because so many people were being brought in. New York. Uh, is, a, is a, an example where they develop. So, so the, the um, development of broken windows policing, CompStat, and databases to collect all that information that was now being generated at you know, many, many times the, um, the rate as before. Now New York has this enormous criminal justice control apparatus that didn't exist before broken windows policing that is now being deployed in all kinds of ways that, that are being grappled with by the community. So, so even when a policy doesn't work out or people back off, it, it leaves a footprint in the system. And, and typically, what we've seen time and time again in American history is what it does is it grows the system. And it is very hard to ratchet back uh, ratchet back our criminal system, as we all know. Well, uh, unfortunately, that's the last question. But please take a moment and thank Professor Nadipov for her wonderful uh, presentation. <laughs> <laughs>